This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. I've never said I'd kill anyone. Never said I'd get rid of anyone. She was about the size of a 10-year-old child. She was about four foot six, maybe, and she weighed maybe 80 pounds. So I feel like her death was just like a little lamb being slaughtered. They both have no conscious, no morals, no scruples, no nothing. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Jessica Knoll. And I'm Will Johnson. Jessica, this week we are digging into the Speed Freak Killers, and we learn about the two men in this story who were on a crime spree over 30 years ago terrorizing communities in California. They were best friends since childhood, and they shared not one but two passions. Right. Lauren Herzog and his best friend since childhood, Wesley Shermantine, had two passions, speed and killing. And that's why they were quickly dubbed the Speed Freak Killers, because of their methamphetamine addiction. And you got to figure that addiction certainly funneled into this sort of drug-fueled spree that we'll tell our listeners about this week. Yeah, there's certainly evidence that their meth fueled their infamous crime spree between 1984 and 1999. All right, well, let's get into the story we will learn of numerous victims, but we're focusing on two in particular as we begin the story this week. It's October 7th, 1985. Chevelle Wheeler's mom drops her off at Franklin High School in Stockton, California. The teen known as Chevy to friends utters, I love you, and shuts the door. But instead of heading to her classes, the 16-year-old skips school to hang out with Wesley Shermantine. She's never seen again. More than a decade later, another local vanishes after a night on the town. On November 13, 1998, 25-year-old Cindy Vanderheiden is seen on a date at a few local watering holes, the Old Corner Saloon in Clements and the Linden Inn Bar and Lounge in Linden. Both bars are owned by her parents and are in neighboring towns of Stockton. She's wearing blue jeans, a peach V-neck T-shirt with a brown leather jacket and brown boots when her date drops her off at her parents' home. But then she vanishes. Reporter Tim Daly covered her story for KXTV in Sacramento. The family of Cindy Vander Eiden was pretty vocal that they felt they knew what was going on, that uh, she had been friends with these guys. Now, their names weren't released to us by cops because they weren't being charged. Those guys were Wesley Shermantine and Lauren Herzog. It was uh, certainly considered suspicious by the family of, of Cindy Vanderheiden that these guys must have had something to do with the disappearance of Cindy. Um, the, the, the circumstances surrounding her disappearance uh, were kind of, um, kind of mysterious and, and almost sensational in the fact that she had been out at a bar with one guy who did take her home, but she never went in her home after that guy dropped her off. Cindy's mom thinks her daughter makes it home because she hears a car pull into the driveway. I thought, okay, Cindy's home. I can go back to sleep. However, she never actually sees Cindy come in. Her gold Chevrolet sedan is found the next day at the Glenview Cemetery in Clements in the early morning hours, not far from her home in San Joaquin County, just east of the San Francisco Bay Area. Inside her car, investigators find clues that make them believe she didn't leave on her own. And to leave it in the condition that it was left in with all of her valuables, her money, her cell phone, and everything behind, just is, uh, is indicating to us that this is very suspicious and uh, there's possibly or likely foul play involved. But Cindy is still missing. 
and her father is certain that her abandoned car holds more evidence than meets the eye. I think that uh, she possibly knew the person because uh, there was no sign of scuffle or anything when I found the car. And a psychic believes the worst has happened to Cindy. I believe very much she was assaulted in the cemetery. I believe very much that's where she went instead of going home. There was a fight, there was a death from what I can see. Uh, this person who hurt her was known by the family. Cindy's family tirelessly searches for their daughter throughout the Northern California countryside, full of lush farms and ranches amid its vast rolling hills. In fact, local rodeo cowboys saddle up their horses to lend their help in the search as well. Well, it would be nice to find something or you know, just, if nothing else, find nothing so that uh, put somebody's, you know, Minded rest. Police bring in bloodhounds to scour the wooded area and the river near where Cindy's car is found. Foam poles just outside the cemetery gates are adorned with large white bows and flyers with a smiling green-eyed brunette's photo. When people cease to cooperate, you have to wonder why. If the truth doesn't hurt you, why would you cease to cooperate? So it's tended to make us focus, whether we're right or we're wrong, on areas where these people have been known to frequent and hunt and have access to. Handwritten flyers offering a $20,000 reward with an anonymous tip hotline for the return or discovery of Cindy are plastered throughout the county as our family continues to search for her day and night. We, we've looked everywhere. We just don't know where else to look. Just call and tell her where she's at and we'll come find her. And I'll go pick her up, no questions asked. Just anything. Just tell us. The, un the unknown is, is, is the hardest part to deal with. Kind of tough for us to stay in it, but we have to, and we're going to until, until we find her or find out what happened to her. Then, Wesley Shermantine's car is repossessed. It holds evidence about what might have happened to Cindy. Human blood. Should this pan out uh, to be uh, Cindy Vanderheiden's blood, this would be an enormous break in this case. But even with that hint of foul play, Cindy's family holds out hope. My gut feeling is I don't think that she's not with us anymore. I don't have that gut feeling that says she's passed on. So I don't want to believe that's hers. At search headquarters, her family and friends light candles. The glow from its flame illuminates the handwritten note in black marker. We miss you, Cindy. Her framed photo sits with a white ribbon tied to the top of the wooden frame next to a gray teddy bear and a tigger balloon. Anything that could give me a, one step closer to finding her, because all I want to do is bring her home, good, bad, or indifferent. But on November 20th, 1998, everything begins to unravel for the speed freak killers when Lauren Herzog starts making some startling accusations against his childhood best friend to police in a 17-hour-long interrogation. Investigators also talked to Wesley Shermantine. It's interesting because you can see of the two who was probably the smarter of the two, and that was Shermantine. Uh, his answers were were calm, uh, complete sentences. Um, you could you could see that he's thinking about how not to incriminate himself, perhaps. Uh, as he answers these questions, he eventually makes it clear he wants a lawyer present as some of the questioning is going on and probably getting more serious as the cops keep insisting, look, 
the blood is in your car. Uh, we have that proof. It's, 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 you know, the DNA situation is, is scientifically proving that her blood is in your car. And you can see Shermantine is processing that information and careful not to, not to admit it to anything that he, he knows is going to lead to serious legal issues for him. Herzog, on the other hand, was, um, the, the taller, skinnier of the two, probably quieter, certainly not as bold as Shermantine. And during his interviews, and they went many, many days for many, many hours, he's, he's easily scattered. He has trouble, I think, concentrating. He certainly has trouble, trouble just using complete sentences. He often interrupts the officers back and forth. He's not letting them finish their questions. He sort of has two and three word responses. So you can see also with Herzog, he, he's growing more frustrated as they keep trying to zero in on what did you know? Were you there? Investigators press Herzog for information about Cindy Vanderheiden's disappearance. Did you take part? Uh, at one point, he, he takes off his hat and he slams it down on the table. It was a fairly violent gesture. I was surprised to see it. But I don't, you know, there were certainly a couple of cops in the room. He wasn't yet in custody. He wasn't handcuffed. But it was a pretty, pretty bold move. Those conversations with Herzog, in which he is very frustrated, uh, and you can tell he's tired and etc. In the end, Herzog confesses only to witnessing Shermantine kill five people, but claims that Shermantine actually took 24 lives, including Cindy's. Detectives quickly surmise that Shermantine is the leader of the deadly duo and manipulated Herzog, a premise that doesn't sit well with Cindy's family. I just am in amazement that anybody could stand by and let something like that happen to somebody. I was shocked. I guess you could say. Meanwhile, Shermantine, the stockier, shorter, and supposed ringleader of the two, tells anyone who will listen that Lauren Herzog is the real killer. Lauren was always a talker, wanted to be a tough guy. I never really knew he was killing people. It's a cat and mouse game that frustrates Cindy's family to no end. They're both badgering each other at one time. And I mean, I get calls from inmates of things that are said in jail. But it doesn't matter who's blaming whom, because in March 1999, they're both arrested on multiple counts of murder. I think they're both guilty. They both did together. They worked together. They've been together. They both have no conscience, no morals, no scruples, no nothing. In 2001, Shermantine stands trial, including for the murder of Chevy Wheeler and the kidnap, murder, and rape of Cindy Vanderheiden. The victims' families cringe, listening to every horrifying detail. A lot of it's reality. That's her uh, baby girl. You know, she doesn't know what she's going to do. And uh, so that's where I have to come in and be as strong as I can. Inside the courtroom, Cindy's mother, Teresa, leans on her other daughter's shoulder, covering her face, shielding her sobbing, as Cindy's final moments are revealed, until she can no longer take it. Could you listen? Are you tired of having killed your daughter? Or your child? I tried. I wanted to, but I couldn't do it. In his confession to investigators and then on the stand, Herzog, the tall, skinny, stringy, long-haired man who police believe was the follower of the two, claims that he, Cindy Vanderheiden, and Shermantine, quote, snorted crank together in the cemetery, then drove to a deserted road where Shermantine raped Cindy and slit her throat while Herzog watched from the back seat. He also reveals that his friend burned her body the next day. Cindy's sister can't believe her ears. Normal, everyday people in my eyes at first. I mean, I didn't think nothing of them. I just knew them through, you know, the bar, being a bartender. I know, you know, I'm 
talk to people all the time. I thought I could judge people, but uh, turned out I was wrong. Shermantine is found guilty for the murders of Cindy Vanderheiden, Chevy Wheeler, Howard King, and Paul Cavanaugh, and the jury decides his fate. We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, find the punishment at death. It's a relief and a long time coming for Cindy's parents, John and Teresa. He doesn't care of human life or anything, and that's why the death penalty is, is what he should have. I know I will probably never have my daughter but justice has been served. Chevy's father plans on watching his daughter's killer die. Will you be there for the execution? Absolutely. I wouldn't miss it for the world. Although both Chevy Wheeler and Cindy Vanderheiden's families both agree that they would give him a life sentence instead of the death penalty if they could just find their daughters. Now that he's got the death penalty, we have leverage. And hopefully he'll he'll come around and, and tell us where the bodies are. If he gives us our children back, I'll give him life. I don't see anything that, as long as I got my daughter back and Wheeler's got their daughter back. But Shermantine maintains that he is not the killer. I've never said I'd kill anyone. Never said I'd get rid of anyone. The victim's families address the court and Shermantine at his sentencing, and they don't hold back. He just does not deserve a, a chance in hell. That's, and I hope you go to hell. Maybe one of those big old boys out there will treat him the way he treated his victims, and I would love to see that. But Shermantine fires right back. You call this a fair trial? That's all I ask for is a fair trial. Come on, where's all these people at? They're in Lauren Herzog's boneyard pile, you know that. Following his trial, however, Shermantine offers up the locations of some of the victims, but only if he gets the $20,000 reward money from the Vanderheiden case. I told my lawyer, I go, if this is the truth, what he has told me, and these people are there, where he's described they are, I told him, there's a reward. I told him, would I be eligible for that reward? He said, no. I go, well, how about my children? No deal. And so, no locations for the grieving families. I feel for their loss, you know, because they have lost something, part of their life that they can't get back. But I mean, my family has clearly lost a lot too because of these people and the lies. Then the families have to sit through it all over again when Herzog stands trial in August 2001 for the murders of Cindy Vanderheiden, Paul Cavanaugh, and Howard King. I'm just dreading it. It's hard. It's. I don't know if I'm going to be able to stand there and to listen to some of it. Herzog is found guilty and sentenced to 78 years. But still, no Cindy, no Chevy. I know both Lauren and Shermantine both know where she's at, and they're just afraid to give it up. I believe there's more bodies there, and that's the reason why they're not doing it. And Cindy's grieving father would be right. But that's not the end of the Speed Freak killer's story. Not even close. In 2004, the State of Appeals overturns Herzog's murder convictions, citing a coerced confession. In a shocking plea deal and time served, Herzog is released from prison and on parole by 2010. This this helps make this clear what happened with Herzog. During the appeals process, it turned out that the sheriff's interviews with Herzog, in which he basically spilled his guts, A number of those interviews were considered coerced and illegal. The information obtained couldn't be used. And so Herzog's murder convictions were overturned. In the process of negotiating what would happen next, whether he should be retried or not, 
he agreed to a, a guilty uh, a, a, a plea of guilt to uh, voluntary manslaughter on the Vanderheiden case and providing drugs to Vanderheiden. And also, I think he was willing to plead guilty to being an accessory in a couple of other murders of men in the mid-'80s. It wasn't just women who were victims of these two guys. So by agreeing to plead guilty to a much lesser charge and to avoid a second trial, um, and for years he had already served in prison, being given good, you know, time for good behavior. He was being paroled, but no, no county in, in in California wanted Lauren Herzog back on the streets in their county. There was a great uproar over the idea that Herzog was getting out of prison after just you know uh, uh, eight or nine years and might be relocated back to a ball place in San Joaquin County, where a lot of his victims were. So the state prison system, um, as I recall, arranged to have Herzog. Uh, live in a mobile home, basically at the same prison he had just been released from. The, the, the interviews, many of them, were overturned by an appeals court. Uh, an appeals court in California eventually found that those interviews with Herzog, um, his, his participation in the crimes were, according to the court, coerced, that he was tired, that he wasn't given food, that he wasn't necessarily given a chance to talk to a lawyer. And it was, you know, you can probably trace back now when you think about it. It was Herzog's conviction being overturned that probably rattled Sherman Tyne on death row, thinking, oh, I'm not going to just sit here on death row and Herzog goes free. And Sherman Tyne starts to talk. That's what prompted Sherman Tyne to then start talking and making far more efforts to, to notify people like me, reporters, uh, hey, I'm here, I'm willing to talk, I'm willing to tell you where all the bodies are. And ultimately, Sherman Tyne opening up like that is what led to him being let out of prison one weekend and, and brought back to San Joaquin County and started pinpointing and offering information as to where their bodies were. And were you, were you on location at any of those uh, searches for victims? We uh, went a couple of times up to Calaveras County, where the Shermantine family had property. Shermantine sheds new light on this horrific case, leaving one more dead and several bodies finally revealed. It was when Herzog got out of prison, that's when Leonard Padilla, the bounty hunter out of Sacramento, basically started talking with Shermantine saying, hey, you know what, Herzog is out, right? So that theoretically is what got Sherman Tyne interested in talking with everybody. And the theory is, and it's probably the best theory, is that Herzog, knowing that Sherman Tyne was going to start talking with greater detail and specifics about what the two of them had done, that's when Herzog uh, committed suicide in that trailer up by the prison where he had been uh, held for all those years. In 2012, 46-year-old Lauren Herzog hanged himself inside his trailer home after learning that Sherman Tyne was about to spill a slew of their shared secrets. According to Lauren Herzog's autopsy, a collage of chilling tattoos covered his body, including the inked words running down his leg, made and fueled by hate and restrained by reality, and one on his foot that read, the devil made me do it. He also left a suicide note that read, tell my family I love them. And as predicted, Sherman Tyne the mustached mastermind behind the murders, according to police, starts pinning numerous letters from death row, 
doling out clues about where his victims are located, even drawing maps for five of the burial grounds, or as he calls them, Herzog's Boneyard, where he says they dumped the bodies. We would get word that, hey, there's something going on up here. You guys ought to run up here and look around. So we'd, we'd drive up. We'd see police out in the forest driving around on, on three-wheeler type motorcycles that help you out on dirt roads in which it was clear they were searching on what we knew to be property that was owned by the Shermantine family. But nothing ever came out of that. Remember, Shermantine and Herzog were convicted without the bodies of both Chevy Wheeler and Cindy Vanderheiden. But there was still blood evidence that indicated they were responsible, so they were convicted on that, but they weren't convicted because bodies had been found. The digging continued. Investigators and reporters alike would travel the rural, winding, narrow, mountainous roads to the locations on the convicted killer's map. It's cold, foggy, and drizzling rain, and the media is kept at a distance. Mostly all they can see is a slew of investigators and large yellow tarps preserving what they're finding. We were kept, uh, I think, a mile away from where the dig was going on. And because it was rolling hills, we couldn't even see what was going on. We just knew that uh, heavy equipment was being used way off at the distance to try and get to where victims were allegedly uh, dumped many, many years prior down this well. We were able to fly a helicopter uh, over the scene. And at that point, you got a better look at what it looked like, and that was... A number of, of officers clearly processing what looked like a crime scene very carefully, you know, laying whatever they were finding as pieces of evidence. After decades of not knowing, the boneyard, as Shermantine described, is where police finally discover the remains of 25-year-old Cindy Vanderheiden and 16-year-old Chevy Wheeler. They also find new evidence. And, it was, and blood of hers was found at the Shermantine property up in the mountains, though there was never enough evidence to prove that Shermantine had something to do with it. It wasn't until many, many years later that they realized, oh, that was Wheeler's blood. But there was always suspicion that that's where Shermantine, uh, and probably with the help of Lauren Herzog, was, was putting victims, was down old mine shafts up in the mountains. The mountains east of Stockton in Calaveras County are filled with uh, what used to be gold mines. During their digs, investigators also uncover nearly 1,000 bone fragments inside an abandoned well in San Joaquin County. And another speed freak murder victim is found, a teenage girl, Joanne Hobson. Nearly three decades after her daughter vanished, Joanne Hobson's mother, Joan Shelley, says Shermantine made a vow to her while she visited him at San Quentin State Prison. And he promised me that he would make sure that they find Joanne. And I believed him. True to his word, Shermantine points authorities to another location, turning up three more bodies, 19-year-old Kimberly Ann Billy, an unidentified victim, and Joan Shelley's 16-year-old daughter, who, like Chevy Wheeler, also disappeared in 1985. She was about the size of a 10-year-old child. She was about four foot six, maybe, and she weighed maybe 80 pounds. So I feel like her death was just like a little lamb being slaughtered. Even though some families have answers, there are still many unknowns in all the speed freak killers' cases. How many victims are there? Some reports speculate up to 70. And where are the rest of the bodies that have never been recovered? Now, only one man holds the key to those answers. The speed freak killer who's locked away, looking out from behind bars, 
sitting on death row. Having covered it for as long as you did, what was the what was the most shocking part of these cases, in your opinion? I think what may be most shocking is is how brazen they were, and and the fact that they were sort of getting away with it for a while because um, we we became familiar and we started following this very closely with the disappearance of Cindy Vanderheiden in the late nineties. But Herzog didn't leave the bar with Cindy Vanderheiden. He was certainly uh, likely going to be questioned about where were you, what did you know, what did you see, did you talk to her, considering his reputation. Uh, it just it just was surprising to me how, how, how bold they felt, and mostly at Sherman Tyne more than Herzog, but the two of them, sort of the fact that they were linked to so many evidences or incidents of violence that they would be willing to continue that work, pardon the expression, continue that 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 behavior of, of hurting people and even killing them. So that's one of the things that shocked me was that they were on the radar of police all up and down this part of the state of California, and yet they continue to behave that way. Jessica, this story is so painful to hear when you hear the family members talking and then it's just shocking when you hear about what Sherman Tyne calls Herzog's Boneyard. One of the parts of the story that is just so weird and kind of flabbergasting is the fact that they put him in a mobile home near the prison where he spent years of his life. Yeah, I mean, from what we've gathered from the reporter who covered this story for many years is that really no one wanted him back in their community when he got paroled. So that was, I think, their way of letting him be on parole, but having him close and kind of appeasing the community at the same time, because you've got to think this is still a convicted serial killer who, while it was overturned, has admitted to watching his best friend kill all these other people. So regardless of what he's admitting to killing or being a witness to, there was a lot of unease and unrest about him being back in the community after all this. Yeah, I can understand that. And maybe that's something that happens. I guess you have to find a place for people once they get out, even if it seems like it's a gross miscarriage of justice that either one of these guys could get out. The other part of this is that they are playing off of each other. And correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like at first one of them thinks the other's going to spill the beans and then it turns back to where the first one's going to maybe spill the beans and then Herzog, as we find out, eventually kills himself. It's a really twisted story at that part because we really don't know why Herzog committed suicide. As far as we know, in his suicide note, it just said, tell my family I love them. So we don't know if it was an attempt at getting rid of his own guilt or if he was afraid that Sherman Tyne was going to spill more secrets that they both shared. I think through the whole case, they both were back and forth at each other. You know, one was blaming the other. No one admitted to any of the killings. It was pointing fingers the whole time, which, as you heard, you know, totally frustrated the family. So today, Jessica, Lauren Herzog is gone. And Wesley Shermantine is still on death row, a fitting in perhaps for these two childhood friends who grew up to be killers. These two very different type of guys, it seems, uh, although they were always sort of connected. Right. I mean, throughout the investigation, Herzog was 
kind of this nervous, unraveled, really tall, skinny guy who almost sometimes couldn't complete a sentence during interviews and interrogations because he was so flustered. And then you have this cool, calm, collected, shorter, larger man who, by all accounts, as police say, was the ringleader of all of this. They definitely had two very different personalities, but when they came together, it was obviously a deadly combination. All right, Jessica, thanks for bringing us the story of the Speed Freak Killers. And we will be back next week, as always, with a new story and a new case. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major listening apps.